Today's reading comes from 1 John 1, 5, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim we have fellowship with him and yet, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in light as he is light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us to make all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and the world is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You can have a seat. He did his hair especially for you guys this morning. Um, over the past uh, few months, I've gotten hooked on a YouTube channel. YouTube is such a time suck for me. Um, and the AI is great. It'll, it'll suggest all these videos for me to watch. But one of the the videos that it popped up and I watched and then I, I just it's, it's keep suggesting these and I keep watching them um, and then you, you, this is you're gonna think what that channel but uh, it's a Dave Ramsey channel uh, uh, he do you guys know who Dave Ramsey is no, no? Yeah. couple people three I see three heads or hands nodding so he's like he's sort of like a financial planner who has created this um, educational system to help people get um, control of their out-of-control financial lives. He's a Christian, and his ed uh, financial advice stems from his faith and principles that he sees in the Bible. And he, his kind of underlying principle that undergirds everything that he does is he believes that everything that we have belongs to God. And that we are stewards of what is God's and is on loan to us. But ultimately, it's God's. And so we have this responsibility for the way we manage our financial lives. And so that's sort of what he talks about. He, he kind of talks about, okay, you have these resources and you have this calling to be stewards of these resources. How are you going to accomplish God's purposes with those and some of the purposes is you know live within your means take care of your families and be generous and I think most of us can kind of hear those things and yeah that's those are good good purposes you know save money build wealth take care of my family and then be crazy generous <laughs> but what Dave Ramsey has noticed and this is partly uh, born out of his personal story is it's it's sort of easier said than done it's, it's sort of one of those things that you can like nod in agreement to that sort of purpose but actually executing on that purpose can be really really hard in our everyday lives and so what he has done is he said okay how can I help people how can I help people who are often find you know their financial lives out of control move from that place of being out of control to a place of freedom and control. And so what he did is he created what he called baby steps. You just take one little step at a time. And if you take these baby steps, you over time, it can take a long time to get through all the baby steps, but if you stick to the plan and follow the steps, 
you will eventually get to this place where you're living within your means, where you're able to take care of your family, and you can be generous. Here are some of his baby steps. If, if, and by the way, the sermon's not really about this. This is sort of just my, in my intro. But if, if anybody is interested in doing something like this, we could, I'd be happy for New City to launch. It's called Financial Peace University. Uh, just do a small group around this uh, sometime this spring. But so, the, you know, the first thing is just save $1,000. That's a baby step. That's the first baby step. In order to do this, you've got to create a budget, save $1,000, and then it kind of builds from there. And in one sense, we all know these, these steps. I mean, some of them you might disagree with. You know, you may, he's, he's pretty anti-debt. There's a proverb that says the borrower is slave to the lender. And so, and he had a bad experience with debt. So he really pushes people to have zero debt. And, you know, there may be a disagreement for, on some people on that. You may disagree with how you do the retirement savings or the college fund or whatever. But, but generally, we all agree Hey, this is good. It's good to, to pay off our debt, maybe it, with the exception of our house. It, it's good to have an emergency fund because you don't know kind of what's coming right around um, the corner. It's good to think about retirement. You know, we can't work until we're 90 or 100 or however long we end up living. And so you want to you plan for the retirement so you retire with dignity. These are good things, but it can be hard to know how to get there, and that's what his steps offers is, okay, just first, make a budget, save $1,000, and then you kind of move up from there. And as, I've, as these videos have been popping in my feed, and it's all people calling in and having very specific situations, and then him talking them through it, I've thought, you know, I would kind of like some baby steps for my spiritual life. I would like a set of simple steps that I could take that if I followed these steps, I would grow. Now, there's some part of me that bristles at that because I know there are these exceptions. Just like in financial plannings, there are hiccups that can happen. But on a basic level, on a super basic level, there's some core principles of life in our financial lives, and in our spiritual lives that you and I need to accept and follow if we're going to grow. I want to know what these are. I want to follow these practices because as I become older and older, I want to become more mature. I want to be a more spiritually mature person. I want to have a more virtuous character. As I become older and older and I start to, to face all sorts of losses, whether it's the loss of my health, whether it's a loss of loved ones, whether it's the end of my career, all of these things are happening. Nobody can avoid them. And eventually death, when that happens, I want to face all these losses with peace. This is a fruit of spiritual maturity. So I'm able to face these losses peacefully and with acceptance. I want to become that sort of person. And as I become older, I would like to become wise. So that in my old age, I, I, I've accumulated all this wisdom that I can then share with other people. Like this is, this is sort of spiritual retirement planning. This is me thinking about the long-term future, thinking about who I want to become. And these are some of the things that I want to grow into. Like, don't you want those things? In the same way that we all want to accumulate wealth and retire when we're older, 
We want to grow up into these spiritually mature, wise people. But like financial planning, it doesn't just happen. We don't just become that way. We have to prepare for it. We have to engage in practices. And this is the purpose of spiritual formation. The purpose of all of our spiritual practices are to form us, to transform us into this sort of person. Here's how one author puts it. He says, our calling is that we would be God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, quoting from Colossians 3, and that we would learn how to be blameless, harmless children of God. So this is kind of where we're going. This is the purpose, the direction. Faultless in the midst of a twisted and misguided generation, from within which we shine as lights in the world, lifting up the word of life, or a word of life. This is sort of the, the type of person we're meant to become. This is the type of person that spiritual formation, spiritual practices lead us to become. In the Gospel of John, Jesus prays for his followers, and he articulates sort of the purpose or the trajectory of our future this way. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So this idea that the goal of, of spiritual formation, transformation, is being united, union with God, and our inner being so intimately close with God. The goal, the purpose of our spiritual life, union with Jesus and the Father and one another through the Holy Spirit so that we become like God's, like God's kids. We look just like him. Holy, blameless, harmless, faultless. And as we do that, we bear witness that Jesus is God's son in this dark and depraved world. So in other words, the purpose, there's a purpose for financial planning, the purpose for our spiritual planning is that we become the sorts of people that are united to God and look like him. And today we're starting a new sermon series because this is the new year where we're going to consider some of the steps that we can take to get there. In the same way that financial, getting to that financial future that we want requires some real intentional work and planning and steps, our spiritual lives also require intentional work, steps, and practices. And that's what we're going to be talking about. What are, the, what are like the core things you have to do? What are the things you absolutely have to do as a Christian if you want to grow spiritually? These are non-negotiables. And according to John, in the passage that Dan read for us, the first and most basic step that you must take, you have to confess your sins. In our passage, John makes it clear just how foundational this practice is. If the goal is union with God, this sort of intimacy with God, then he wants us to see how crucial confession is for achieving union. He said that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. He says when we sin and then refuse to confess our sin, we're trying to bring darkness into light. It's not the fact that we sin 
that keeps us separated from God. The thing that keeps us separated from God in this passage is our refusal to confess our sin. God is super eager to forgive our sin. He is ready to forgive us. This is the mission of Jesus. But in this passage, it's our refusal to tell the truth about our sin that keeps us in darkness. It's like God is just right there waiting, but we are clinging, hiding this darkness. So for this reason, the first baby step that we have to take, the first foundational step that we have to take, if you want to grow spiritually, is to confess your sins. And despite the simplicity of this step, few of us want to take it. In the financial planning world, the the first baby step that Dave Ramsey had was to save $1,000. And it's simple. You can save $1,000. Depending on how much you make is going to depend how long it's going to take to save $1,000. But any of us can do it. We can all create a budget where we segment out how much we make, where it's going to go, and how much we're going to save. It's really one of the more simple parts of financial planning. It's not like going out and trying to research and pick stocks. It's not like trying to write a will. Creating a budget is something every person can do. But it is really hard. That first baby step can be really hard because it's a reversal of the way that we have been living. In the same way, confessing our sins isn't complicated. Every one of us. You don't have to be a spiritual master to just name the wrong that you have done. You just have to say it out loud. But it's something like budgeting that we hate to do. When I need to confess my sins, I often hesitate. And I have this conversation in my head where I start to, to rationalize why I don't really need to confess my sin, right? I don't want to name it. And I especially don't want to look at it from all angles and tell the truth about it. Why I did it. What I did. It doesn't matter what my sin is. I don't want to talk about it or admit it or confess it. The other day, my youngest son, Luke, he's five, he did something. I yelled at him. And about 30 minutes later, we were going somewhere in the car, and he said, you know, Dad, when you yelled at me, that hurt my feelings. Are you going to say sorry now? I smiled. And as moved as I was by his cuteness, I wanted to say, no. (laughs) There's still something in me. Resisted. Naming my bad actions. Even to a five-year-old who not only loves me, he's dependent on me. Doesn't matter if I confess or not, or it doesn't matter how much I admit that I've done something wrong. He can't go anywhere. He can't run away from me. There's just something in me that doesn't want to admit that I have made a mistake. I don't want to confess my sins. What is that? What is it in you and in me that is so resistant to name our sin, even when the person we are naming it to loves us so much? For me, I think it's just this deep fear of vulnerability. When I confess my sins, I feel vulnerable. If I confess to my spouse that sometimes I'm lazy, 
I'm worried that that might be used against me, even though she would probably never do that. It still just feels vulnerable for me to admit that sort of deficiency of character. I don't like other people knowing my weak spots. Or if I confess to a friend, uh, something I did long ago, I tell the truth about that and how it affected me and this bad thing I did in my past, I'm afraid that person will forever view me differently and treat me differently. I'm worried that he'll look down on me. And in church, in church, confessing your sin in church, you tried that. Christians can get so caught up in legalism and, and self-righteousness. And, and even like when we talk about you know, these programs for becoming spiritually mature, which we're talking about, sometimes the unintended consequences that we all get so serious about becoming good and so confident that this program works, that when it doesn't work for somebody or when somebody makes a mistake, it's just like, ah, oh, just don't tell me that because that, that sort of like can make me feel insecure about all this hard work that I'm doing to get better. So there can be this pushing aside or shaming or even excommunicating people who are sinning and struggling and going through hard times. And I read an article the other day about this conservative community in Kansas. They're basically withdrawing from the world and forming their own little church community. Super conservative, have their own school. They've taken over the city government. Very strict. And one of the young girls who was growing up there kind of bristled at this authoritarian uh, regime, religious regime, and so she ran away and lived a life of sin for a little while, and then, thanks be to God, didn't want to go down that path of sin anymore, so she came back to the community, met with a priest, and, and was confessing her sins, and one of the sins that she confessed is that she knew a girl who got an abortion. She didn't get an abortion, she knew a girl who got an abortion. And, and this was so unforgivable for this priest. And he reasoned that you should have been able to stop her, so she was excommunicated from the community. This is the sort of thing Christians do. To a lesser degree, I've experienced the same thing. I've been in a small group. Maybe you've experienced something like this. And you have confessed your sins to the people in your small group. And things have changed. And people have gotten uncomfortable. And there's been emotional and relational running away from you. We're hesitant to confess our sins. So we've experienced the way telling the truth about ourselves can lead to abandonment. And getting kicked out of community. Confession is risky because of this. Because we are vulnerable... And because people will often withdraw from us because they're grossed out by us or, or for some other reason they, their own anxiety gets in the way and so they need to push us away to feel better about themselves, we often avoid it. We choose to we commit a sin and we know that if somebody, not only do we not want to tell the truth about it, but we don't want other people to find out about it. So then we compartmentalize that part of our soul and hide it from the rest of the world. It's that part of our story that gets placed in darkness. And what ends up happening, the more we do this, the more we have desires, engage in actions or behavior, and then deny them, 
compartmentalize them and shove them into the deep, dark places of our soul. The more we do that, the more we take ourself and split it in two. So that we have this real you and me, which is full of all these dark places of sin. And then the me and you, the self that we are okay with other people seeing. And if we're unwilling to confess our sins, if we're unwilling to talk about this self with anybody, then this can really become a pretty significant disintegration of our inner inner life. And when we do this, we lose something. We lose, and what John says we lose in this passage is we lose out on fellowship. There's some dynamic that happens. When you sin or when I sin, and then we hide that thing in darkness, unwilling to tell anybody, it affects our capacity to relate to people because we take a part of ourselves and lock it away so we have, then we have this fake self that we're holding out here, and this is the only self that people can see. So the relationships that we're having with people are based on a projected false self. So the level of intimacy that can happen is automatically very shallow. It's just this false self who's not really who we are that's in relationship with other people. John in verses 6 and 7, if you claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son purifies us from all sin. There is a way that unconfessed sin keeps us from community. The segmenting off of ourself means that we miss out on intimacy and real relationships with others. In order to have fellowship with others, we need to confess. In order to live a life of love, we need to confess. In order to be in Christian community, we need to confess so we can bring ourselves together And then we can bring our whole self into relationship with others. Let me give you an example of how this works just in ordinary relationships. Think about um, kind of more basic level. When we, the way that this works out kind of in ordinary relationships, you kind of see the parallel here, is when we keep secrets from one another. And we may rationalize the keeping of secrets is better for the other person if they don't know because maybe it would be too harmful for the person to know the content of the secret. But what ends up happening is the, the act of keeping a secret means that we're segmenting a part of ourselves out of the relationship. So then, we're not, so then that, that just the fact that we're holding a secret can do more damage to the relationship than the content of the secret. So let, let me give you an example. Think, think of your two friends, Bill and Bob. You know, the, the two people you play soccer with. Now let's say your soccer team is doing really well and uh, you're going to win the championship, whatever that championship is. Now let's say that Bill takes you aside and tells you a secret. He tells you that he is tired of soccer and that he's going to quit possibly before the end of the season. But then he says, make sure you don't tell Bob. 
If he knows I'm going to quit, he might quit too. So you have to keep this secret. I needed to tell you, but you, got, you can't tell anybody about this. Make sure you don't tell Bob. Bill is asking you not to tell Bob about this secret. And later in that day, you go and get ice cream with Bill and Bob. And the presence of this secret will impact the way you relate to your friends, Bill and Bob. You'll tend to feel a little bit closer to Bill because you have this shared secret bond. And you'll tend to feel a little bit more distance from Bob because you have this secret that you can't tell him. And so just being near him causes you to feel the weight of the burden of holding on to this secret. And if this goes on for weeks into the season, increasingly you will avoid Bob. Because every time you're near Bob, the presence of the secret will weigh on you. Content of the secret's not that bad, but the fact that there is a secret can cause more damage to that relationship than the content of the secret. This is just a benign example of someone who you're playing soccer with who wants to quit a team and is worried it's going to upset some people. Now imagine how this plays out in workplaces. You see a coworker do something, in friendships, in marriages in your family of origin, and secrets are kept for generations. Secrets transform the nature of our relationships with one another. Here's how one therapist describes their power. Keeping a secret can cause more problems than the content of the secret. When people know a secret, they tend to become more guarded and less open with related others. They have to be careful not to reveal the secret, and this becomes a primary focus in managing the relationship. Typically, they do this by distancing. Secret is different than, you know, just not telling a person something. A secret is something you're actively hiding, something you're trying to keep in darkness from another person, pretending like it doesn't exist, and, and it becomes anxious, there's some anxiety around the other person discovering it. And when we carry secrets in relationships, the relationships always suffer. Secrets are the result of our unwillingness to confess and tell the truth about something. Keep us in darkness and keep us from having real fellowship with others. And the same is true with God. God is so willing to forgive our sin. But when we keep a secret from God, when we refuse to confess, the fact that we refuse to confess ends up creating more distance, much more distance in our relationship with God than the sin would. If we're unwilling to speak the truth about who we are, our relationship with God, there's not going to be spiritual growth. This is the first and most basic Baby step, we have to tell the truth about ourselves. And if we can't do that, we're going to segment some part of us and keep it in darkness, and we're going to experience separation from the light as we cling to the darkness. But when we confess our sin, John wants us to know you can have confidence that if you take that dark thing and bring it before God, you will be met with forgiveness. He makes this clear by by making this if-then statement. If we confess, then this will happen. And he grounds the then 
in who God is, not in what we do. So it's not like, if you confess good enough, God will forgive you, or if you've done 10 nice things that day and then confess your sins, God will sin. He says, if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us because he is faithful and just. So the the guarantee that we will be forgiven is rooted firmly in who God is, not us. This is a point of emphasis in the Greek. He just wants us to understand it's all because God is so faithful and so just. He keeps his, which basically just means he keeps his promise. This is hard for us to know, experience, believe. And so in order to fully experience this um, confession and then forgiveness experience, uh, we often need to do it with somebody else. Now, sometimes, you know, sin, you can like just kind of do a little quick prayer to God. But a lot of times, especially if it continues to weigh on you, you need to actually tell it to somebody else. In the same way that committing a sin and then keeping it in hiding and refusing to confess it, can cause isolation and lack of fellowship. The way that we experience a restoration with God and others is then by telling a, a real person. You don't have to tell everybody, but you have to tell somebody. Because my sin cuts me off from fellowship with God and others, I experience restoration as I confess my sin to somebody else who serves as a representative of God. This can be a pastor, spiritual director, can be a trusted Christian friend. But when you choose who you're going to confess your sins to, there it, is, it shouldn't be just anybody. The importance is that they understand, not just know in their head, but experientially understand the gospel. That God sent His Son Jesus to die for our sins so that we can have fellowship with Him. That they know this in their bones. So that when you speak your sins to them, they're not going to run away. They're not going to tell you what you did wrong or how you can fix it. You will be met with grace. They can represent God's mercy to you. A few weeks ago, I I did this. I confessed something to my spiritual director. And when I had finished, every time I'm in spiritual director, I'm confessing something. If only because I'm telling the truth about who I am with somebody. And there's very few people that I can tell the full truth about myself to. But this time I was confessing something. I was like, this was bad. I shouldn't have done this. And he stops and he says, from all accounts, it seems to me that God is much more merciful than we can even imagine. Everything I read about Jesus in the gospel He is ready and eager to forgive your sins. That sounds like such a simple thing. But in the midst of my vulnerability of telling the truth about who I am, something gross, that was just deeply healing for me. He's functioning as a representative of Jesus. Representing Christ's love and God's forgiveness, love, and acceptance for me. This is like the primary purpose of the church. To embody God's grace and forgiveness to sinners. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. (laughs) All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God 
was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal to the world that he's trying to draw back to himself through us. You and I are ambassadors of grace and forgiveness. So we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God yourself. Confess your sin. Be reconciled with God. And then take that message of grace. Know the gospel deep in you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is your mission. This is our mission. God has given his son for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can be in fellowship with him and with one another. And it is our mission to communicate that grace and forgiveness of sins to one another. My hope is that our our community, this community, can so radically cling to grace that we are free and not afraid to confess our sins to one another, to tell the truth about who we are. We are deeply loved and accepted by God. This is the first step we got to take if you want to grow spiritually. Let's pray. God, we give thanks that in Christ you are not counting our sins against us. Help us to know and embody that today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.